Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green and I'm your host. It's September the 6th, 2020, the year that will never end. Um, it's been a better week. It's been a hot week. We set some records where I live in Asheville for heat. Um, first week, we had our first 90 plus degree day of the year in September, not all during the summer, in September. So it's been that kind of a week. The next week promises to be about 15 degrees cooler. So I'm really looking forward to that. I prefer fall and winter, um, especially because I like to hike. And so getting out in the heat like that is not the greatest thing in the world. Um, we had we had a nice hike on our anniversary on Sunday of last week. We went down to Flat Rock, which is near Hendersonville, North Carolina. And we went to the house where Carl Sandburg lived the last part of his life and we hiked up on a mountain uh, outside there got up to the top and just as we got there i couldn't see where the trail had gone because there was literally some huge rocks there and um happened the guy came along and showed us where to go and we got there and there was a guy sitting there who had passed us on the way up and uh, suzanne and i and these two guys ended up spending a little time chatting about hiking and stuff like that, and then it, it became a, a different sort of a conversation. The guy who had met us and told us where the trail went um, actually ended up sharing with us about struggle in his life. And he, he was talking about that he used to hike with his wife all the time, and now she had some significant back problems that, that were going to require them to go to Emory and have some experimental surgery, and, and he asked us to pray for him. And so as... Um, as he was telling us about that, this guy became very teary-eyed. It was obvious that he, he had a, a lot of love for his wife, and he was deeply concerned about what was to come and, and what this was going to look like and how they were going to have to navigate life, uh, depending on the outcome of the surgery. And they really didn't know how that was going to work. And so he then kind of went on his way and began to talk to the other guy who had passed us on the way up. And... Um, he had greeted us as past us, and and I remembered it because it was an interesting way to greet somebody. It's good to see you guys today out here in such a way that, that he felt like, do I know this guy? Did I, do I not remember him or something? What's going on here? And so that was the guy we were speaking with, and it turns out that he's been a missionary in Germany for about 30 years. Uh, raised his family there. He's leaving there and going to um, Spain. Uh, and, and starting a new chapter at, at 57, and began to talk about life, began to talk about the church, began to talk about our faith, and it was just a really interesting time. Um, so we, we ended up, it, it redeemed a very hot, hilly hike, and uh, it was wonderful to have this conversation with two brothers at the top of the mountain that we'd never met before or seen, and it's just that we were in our own little world with them. There were a lot of other people there at the summit. And uh, and yet, when we were in conversation with one another, there was, there was a fellowship and a community that was formed by our faith in Jesus that was really fascinating. We became our own little congregation, as it were. And so today what I want to talk about has something to do with the congregation. The, the first lesson is from Exodus, and it's uh, Exodus 12, 1 through 14. It's when God gives the instructions to Moses 
and Aaron, actually, uh, in the land of Egypt at the after the nine plagues have happened. He then tells them about the one that's to come. This month shall be the first for you among the beginning of the months. It'll be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. It's a, an interesting word there for congregation. It, it's, it's a, remember who this is. It's a family. It's an extended family, the extended family that begins with Jacob, the family that's preserved by Joseph, the brother who is sold into slavery and who everybody thinks is gone, but who becomes the essentially the CFO of Egypt, as it were, becomes an incredibly important man. And then remember last week, 400 plus years later, we learned that, that a new pharaoh comes to power, a new king, and he didn't know Joseph, didn't care about Joseph. That meant nothing to him. And so he began to be concerned about the Israelites. What they needed to be concerned about was Israel's God. God says in all of this, this instruction that he gives to Moses and Aaron about take some of the blood of that lamb and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel, which is the part that goes across the top of the door in which they eat it. They'll eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They'll eat it. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head and its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. All of this is, is coming up on the sacrificial system that God's going to give them when they're out in the wilderness. It's going to be a part of their worship. And so this night is likewise a part of their worship. It's the beginning of the coming together of Israel, the nation. Not just an assembly or a congregation or a, or a family but it's the nation of Israel that's coming into being. It is God's chosen people stepping into a role that he's given them, which is to be a light to the rest of the world when they go to the promised land and they there eat of its bounty and delight in its abundance, that they will give thanks to him in certain ways. And some of this has got to do with the sacrificial system. Everything has to be roasted. Nothing can be boiled. Nothing can be cooked in any other way that this stuff for sacrifices have to be burned but there's there's a, a thank offering that's in view here later that where for the abundance or blessing that a man has received he'll make a different kind of an offering a thank offering or free will offering not one for sin or not a prescribed sacrifice but it's, it's one that that you make because of gratitude uh, to celebrate peace with the Lord, to celebrate his blessing. And when you do, you eat of that. Uh, you partake of the meat of that because it's celebrating communion between the worshiper and God. And in some of those, then you invite the entire community to partake of that offering with you 
they come and they eat as well. And so poor people could come for those. And, and if you were there, then there was an obligation to invite you to that feast. So there's always been this communal aspect that we see here. So families are supposed to celebrate together. But if the family's too small for an entire lamb, then they're to combine with one another and express this same sense of family in what they do. And it's the same way that they're intended to treat um, one another in the covenant, in the promised land. And the, the word neighbor factors heavily in both this and in the Ten Commandments. You're not supposed to covet your neighbor's wife. You're not supposed to covet anything of your neighbors. There, there are multiple obligations God speaks of as far as neighbors are concerned. And here he's talking about who is your nearest neighbor. And so they've got to figure out who that person is. And, and so this issue of who is the neighbor is an important concept that plays all the way through uh, the Bible, frankly. Old Testament and New Testament. And so here you, you get the instructions for how to do all this. And then he even tells you how to eat it. You're supposed to have your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you will eat it in haste. It's a meal that you eat as you're prepared to go. Prepared to flee. But you've made all the preparation for the meal. And it, and it seems like well, that's, that's not a great way to eat a meal. It's certainly not the way that it was celebrated in the Last Supper, if that is indeed the Passover. It's certainly not the way it's celebrated today. Now it can last all night long. The Passover Seder can, and it's because they're at ease. They're not preparing to flee. God's prepared them for what's going to come next when the Egyptians basically beg them to leave and give them lovely parting gifts as they do. He says, it's the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgments. I'm the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you, the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And so it, he's announcing the destruction of every firstborn male, or man and beast in Egypt. And then he makes that odd comment about all the gods of Egypt. On them, I'll execute judgment. It's an odd thing. I found out something that I didn't actually know, which encompasses a huge amount of territory. But one of the things that I found out in, in looking at this week um, and looking at Passover actually has to do with this issue of, you remember it says that you can take the, the uh, sacrifice from either the sheep or the goats. It specifically had to be one of those two. And those two factor heavily in the, um, in the covenant that God makes with his people as well. And ultimately we will say that, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, one who takes our sins upon himself. And then we'll see that same image in Revelation 5 when <clears throat> the Lamb, looking like it was slain, appears before the throne and takes the scroll when no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was found um, worthy of receiving 
that scroll. So the odd thing is, like I said, something I didn't know, is, is that many of the gods of Egypt are represented in the form of either goats or sheep. Um, at least partially, the head of a ram frequently will be used to represent a god. They saw that strength and virility in a ram and worshipped that in some ways. And the same with goats. There's the the power in that in that goat that that they're they're ascribing those characteristics to their to their gods and they've been representing their gods in that way to remind the people of that and so so they, they, well they didn't worship sheep and goats there was a special reverence for those and and they were held in high esteem and so when God says I'm going to execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. It begins right here with telling his people to execute those sheep and goats that they've chosen for this feast all at the same time at twilight. And so right before it gets dark, all of Israel separated. Remember, they live out in the land of Goshen, but it's not far from Goshen to where the Egyptians are, where Pharaoh is. And so they... They all, at the same time, kill these animals. And the noise would have carried into Egypt when they did that. There would have been a great cry of anguish from these animals at the time they did that. It's not a pleasant image by any stretch of the imagination, but, but when they do this, there's also a sign given to the Egyptians that would have infuriated the people of Egypt. And then, so that happens at twilight, and then a few hours later, God does the same. He takes the lives of the firstborn men of Egypt, as well as the firstborn of the beasts of Egypt. And remember, in the covenant, in the, in the instructions for what, what you're to do that God gives, one of the things they have to do is redeem the firstborn male of the flock, but also, and more importantly, the firstborn male of the family has to be redeemed with a sacrifice. The firstborn clearly always belongs to God, but it's not that God has any great preference for the firstborn because look at, well, Moses Moses was not the firstborn. Aaron was the firstborn male in that family. Same with Cain and Abel. Same with Joseph, not the firstborn. Um, David's not the firstborn. So it's not that God has a preference for the firstborn. But what the firstborn represents is promise. The fulfillment of the promise of fertility. The, the promise of progeny. The ability to fulfill the first commandment given to man, which was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so the, the fulfillment of that covenantal obligation is an important thing and it's something to be greatly celebrated as opposed to barrenness. And that's why barrenness in, in the Old Testament particularly had such a great reproach that fell on those who were barren, including the mother of John the Baptist. And then that's 
that has to be not re redeemed in the sense that God could take that child's life, but it has to be redeemed in celebration that God has provided all that was necessary to fulfill that commandment of being fruitful and multiplying. And what was the fear the Egyptians had for the Israelites? The reason that they subjected them to that slavery was they were afraid they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. That was the concern, was, was is that that very commandment would be fulfilled and then they would be too numerous and they would join with their enemies and fight against them. All this harkens back to the beginning. It harkens back to Noah. It harkens back to Babel. The, the community that's gathered has a great power that's seen by the greatest power in the world. Egypt. They see that if this community comes together then it will become mighty. It will become something to be greatly feared. And you know that's what the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be a people, a congregation, a community or an assembly that's filled with the power of God in such a way that we become a force in the world, not for evil or for war, but for good. That we are to be world changers. We are to be those who bring light into the world and change things. But we've got to do that God's way. And it's we've got to deal with certain things. And that's what our gospel and our epistle tell us. And that is, is that, that there are certain things... Paul says in, in Romans 13, 8 to 14, he says, there, to, don't owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another is fulfilled the law. The commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. And any other commandment, he says, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. We say this is that love is the thing that, that overrides everything else. If you have love, then he says it will never do wrong. Which doesn't mean that, that to love somebody is to say, well, I didn't do these things to that person, therefore that's proof that I love them. No, that's not true at all. You might simply be afraid of them. He says that, that, that if you love someone, then you won't do wrong to that someone. So all those things will take care of themselves if what you have is love. And right now, holy moly, I don't see much of that. I would say that the, the overriding emotion is not the right word. Um, the overriding thing in the world today is hatred. I see it on Facebook, I see it in the news, I see it on Twitter, I see everywhere I go, what I see is people hating one another for their beliefs, for their opinions. And it's an ugly, ugly thing to see the hatred in the world today. Well, the church has something special to bring here. It doesn't deny the truth is the first place to start. It, it says, as Paul does here, there, these things are wrong. That the list that comes from the Ten Commandments, he's referring there and bringing in all the other laws of God. He said those things are all right. 
But but the, the it's not a matter of simply saying, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, and taking the boxes. No, he says more to it than that. You've got to love. Which doesn't just seek to do no wrong. It seeks to do good as well. And that's a hard thing to do. But it doesn't deny the truth. It doesn't deny the nature of good and evil. It doesn't say, well, those things don't matter anymore because that's the Old Testament and Jesus sort of got over all those things. That's not the way it works. Unfortunately, that's where the church is compromising too much is is that we, we can either make too much of one sin and therefore too little of another, or we can just decide it's all good, that it's love. No, that's not what Jesus said. It's not what he taught. And it's not what anybody has ever taught before. And look at the fruit of that decision. Is it bringing unity? Is it bringing the world to God to deny the force and the truth of those commandments? It's also not bringing honor and glory to God for us to ignore other sins in our midst, which we've become quite good at. We overlook a great many things that are in the middle of the congregation that the world looks at and says, I believe that's wrong. I've seen it before. I've seen us do these things. I've seen a congregation, well, a leadership, really not a congregation so much, as, as ignore sin. And I mean, I knew a couple who was going through a divorce in a church, and I knew the facts of it because I was there. I was part of the, the I was the person who counseled them through this, and I knew what was going on because I knew that I had to get her an attorney, for instance, for um, different kinds of reasons. And so I know what was going on in that divorce, and, and it was wrong what the, the man was doing. He had uh, he was having an adulterous affair, and, and um, she found out about it, and then he attempted to sue her and the attorney in such a way that the attorney could no longer represent her. And I went to the other leadership of the church and told them what was going on and, and said, we need to deny this man communion. What he's doing is wrong. And the world knew it because there were people outside the church that told her what was going on, and then she was able to find out. And so the world looked on. And the leadership of the church said, no, we can't do that. That's he said, she said. I said, it's not. There are more than one witness. It's not just John. It's, it's others as well. And so we overlooked that. And I refused to give him communion in that circumstance. And, and then ultimately some other people in the church, not the leadership, did confront him and drop the lawsuit. But that's not. That's one of a bunch of stories that I could tell about where we just couldn't do that. But there were other things in that same church and other churches where, where we took a strong stand. But in that instance, we, we couldn't see right from wrong, in my opinion. And there are other places where we do that. And I'm sure I'm guilty of it as well as a leader in the church. I'm sure I've been guilty of overlooking sin right in front of me um, for one reason or another because I happen to like the person a lot or whatever. But it's we've got to be better at that as a church. We've, we've got to... Um, Turn us around. We've got in order to do that. We've got to repent. We've got to we've got to remind ourselves what sin really is. One of the great problems in Israel had always been that they would overlook certain kinds of sins. They would have preference for the wealthy over the poor, for instance. Justice would depend on what you could pay for. 
So we as a church have to be stronger about those things. And Paul says, um, besides this, you know the time, the hours come for us to wake from sleep. And I believe that's a word for the church today. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. I hope we're in the end times, to be honest with you, because it can't get much worse. He says, the night's far gone, the day's at hand. Let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul's listing a bunch of stuff that could easily be applied to today. There's nothing new under the sun. And Paul's telling us we've got to grow up in Christ. We've got to let the power of the Holy Spirit control our lives and lead us and guide us. And if we do that, then we'll become that force we were intended to be, that force for change. Paul says that doesn't mean that everybody's going to love you, but it does mean that the world's not going to see Jesus if it doesn't see Jesus in us, if it doesn't see us loving one another. And if it sees us, it's no different from the rest of the world that it's not going to receive him. Because it's never going to know him. So the gospel is Matthew 18, 15 to 20. And Jesus is telling here about how to do things within the ecclesia, which is the gathering, the community. Because remember, there's not a church. This is before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before Pentecost. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Keep it quiet. Let's try and get this straight between us. Most of the time what we do is we go tell everybody but the brother. We, we let everybody know what's been wrong, what's been done to us. And he says, no, go to your brother and talk to your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. They can hear both sides of the story if you go and do that. And if he refuses to listen to them, he says, tell it to the ecclesia, the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be accused of Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, put him out of your midst. Don't let him come into the worship of the church if you do that. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We dealt with that the other day. It has to do with sin. It has to do with what we decide is sin. And he's speaking here again to the twelve. And he's giving them the authority to do that. And they use that authority again in Acts 15 when they decide what they're going to put on the Gentiles, what they're going to bind onto the Gentiles in order to come into that community. And then by, by contrast, whatever we don't bind, we lose. And so look at that list. It has to do with food sacrifice to idols. It has to do with sexual immorality. It doesn't have to do with circumcision. And so they've accepted at that point baptism is the sign of the covenant. They haven't asked them to take on the whole Jewish law. They've given them a little summary of the law in order to do that. But Jesus, in his summary of the law, says there's, there's one great commandment. That's to love the Lord your God with everything within you. And then he says the second is like unto it. He didn't, he didn't say the second is the second. He said it's like the first one. And that you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And the reason that it's like unto the first commandment is because when you love your neighbor, you're recognizing something really important there. You're recognizing that they're created in the image of God. And so you're loving the image of God. You have a duty to do that because of the first commandment. And it's like unto it because you're loving God and you're loving his image. They're not separated in space from one another. 
there, there's a connection between one and two. That's the reason it's like unto the first commandment. But so, so what this binding and loosing is when Paul says love your neighbor, he's binding back to the Ten Commandments. He's binding back to the law. Paul never negated the law, never said that it didn't have any force or importance in the life of a Christian. What he said was, if you loved your neighbor, you won't do these things which are sin. So if we can come back and realize the power that's inherent in the church, if we do binding and loosing, if we actually understood what's bound and what's loosed, then it would transform the church, which would then begin the transformation of the world. And, and the church right now feels very much like we're in Passover mode, preparing for something. But this, this preparation for God to release us from that as we meet in homes and we meet however we meet right now, um, it's a preparation, I believe, for something great to happen on the back side of this, but only if we're faithful and only if we get rid of sin in our midst, if we get rid of our tolerance for sin in our own lives, if we get intolerant of sin for the things that God has bound, then God will unleash great power through the church again. I believe we're in an opportune moment, to be honest with you. It didn't look great for the, Egypt, for the uh, Israelites at that time, they were slaves. They had seen the power of God. They would seen things that he was doing and bringing plagues. They had been gathered initially, remember, in a time of famine. So here they are, not knowing what's next. And yet God does this great thing and sets them free. We're in a place, I believe, like that in the church today. We're, we're gathering the way we are, and we're anticipating the next move that God will make. Are we agreeing about the things we ask for? Because Jesus says, if, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven, where two or three are gathered in my name there, and I among them. Doesn't have to be 8,000 people, doesn't have to be 80,000 people. Doesn't even have to be eight people, he says. Where two or three are gathered in his name, there's power because God is among them. Do we want that power? Then we have to hang on to his word and ask for more of the Spirit. We have to repent of our sins and we have to love one another. And Jesus showed us the way to do that by praying. Forgiveness for those who crucified him. By forgiving Peter. By washing their feet. Jesus shows how to love. Just laying down your life. If you want to love Jesus, he tells you how last week how to do that. And it's to, to lay down your life. Take up your cross and follow him. It's another invitation to do that. To allow his word and his will to be done in your life. To... Seek to know his word and apply his word in the congregation. Just to pray fervently when two or three are gathered that we might see his power. Thank you for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I pray that this week would be a week when you draw nearer to him and you begin to see his power at work in your life 
and then that might draw you deeper into community with others around you. You might see greater power in that combined community. I hope your week is blessed, and I'll see you next week. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and again, I'm John Green, and I'm your host. If you have any prayer requests or uh, any comments you'd like to make, then please feel free to do so on the Facebook page for Faith Seeking Understanding.